Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for tuning in to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Robert Yeaman. I had a great discussion with Robert, and we actually just met at the 2018 New Harvest Conference on the East Coast. But before we jump into this episode, I just want to give a special shout out to Radical Snacks. They're offering a 20% discount if you use the code FUTUREFOODS at their website, which is radicalsnacks.com. That's R-A-D-I-C-L-E snacks.com, the botanical spelling of radical. They have some really delicious super bars that are packed with 60 blueberries and a lot of other research-based ingredients, so definitely check them out. Robert Yeaman is the co-founder and CEO of Kirin, an early-stage clean meat company focused on the ways that cellular agriculture will make better food. Robert has a philosophy degree from Yale and previously worked at Google as a software engineer. He is a lifelong animal advocate and is passionate about moving society past the massive harms caused by factory farming. This passion led him to clean meat. He believes that the success of clean meat is the most likely way that factory farms will become obsolete in his lifetime, and he's devoted to making this a reality. Robert, I'd like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. Thanks, Alex. I'm really excited to be here. Robert, so you recently founded a clean meat company. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what really led you to start a company in the clean meat space? My previous job was as a software engineer, which is a bit orthogonal to this space. But my relevant background comes from the fact that I was really involved in animal advocacy and and vegan stuff in the Bay Area. So just by nature of being a vegan in the Bay, I kind of was aware of the very early days of clean meat. I met a lot of the folks who were starting the early companies and, and was was friends with them. So, you know, I was aware of everything that was going on, but I didn't think at that point that I'd be working on clean meat. I just found it to be a very exciting new technology that was coming up. And I just, I, I was following the very early days. Fast forward a couple of years and I was still a software engineer, but I was feeling a bit unsatisfied with what I was doing. I was looking for a new direction, looking to do something that was a bit more impactful. And I asked myself, what was the thing in the world that I felt the most excited about. And the answer to that was clean meat. Because of my background in advocacy, it felt like clean meat was the most likely way that we could kind of reach the final goal of of ending factory farming for good. So back in last September, I left my job with the intention of just figuring out how to contribute to the space in any way that I could. And since everything was very new to me, I spent a couple of months just l- learning a bunch about the science, about the industry, doing a lot of networking, talking to a lot of people, and trying to figure out what was the best way I could contribute. So at, at first, I was I was trying to see if I could use my background in uh, software and AI to, to do something useful for, for research. I ended up finding out that there wasn't really much there that I could help with, unfortunately. But I did learn that what the space really needs is more companies, because more companies means 
more more people doing more productive work towards the end goal. So that's when I decided to start Kieran. There's very many reasons why people become vegan. And so before you started the company, you were vegan. What was the primary reason uh, you became vegan? And I guess, how long have you been vegan? I've been vegan for, let's see, like four years, I think. But before that, I was, I was a vegetarian since I was I was pretty little. I there was a lot of reasons I, I kind of made the, the lifestyle switch, both kind of the environmental side of things, you know, knowing it was the one of the best personal things I could do for lowering my carbon emissions, personal carbon emissions, and also the, the kind of animal rights side. Uh, I thought that it was what we how the way we were treating animals on factory farms was morally impermissible. So I, I didn't want to, I wanted to lower my impact on that overall system. So that, that's why I, was a, I became a vegan uh, about four years ago. So when did you first hear about clean meat? Because you were you were working as a software engineer and not formally in the science space, I guess computer science, but not former formally in like the biotech space. So when did you first hear about clean meat? I think I heard about clean meat for the first time in 2015, which is the year that I graduated. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the year after Memphis Meats was founded. So they were they were still really early. It was just a couple of people working on it and. Uh, a friend of mine was working there, and he was someone I knew through advocacy, uh, was working at Memphis Meats. So he told me all about this kind of new weird technology that seemed like it had a lot of potential to really help animals. And uh, yeah, I found it very exciting at the time. Uh, over the next couple of years, I was uh, I was closely following the space. I was supporting the Good Food Institute and uh, New Harvest as well, and you know, watching what happened before I was involved in it personally. So you definitely had a couple of years to think about it before you decided to jump in. And so when you did decide to jump in, like what, you know, one of the biggest challenges that not just biotech or clean meat founders have, but just tech founders in general is to find a, a co-founder. So how did you find the co-founder and, you know, what resources were really helpful for you when starting this clean meat company? And you mentioned Good Food Institute and New Harvest, uh, but what really what else helped you along your path yeah I'm, I'm really happy that you asked about this because it's actually a crazy story about how i met my my co-founder his name is amir so i was when i after i decided i wanted to start kieran this was around the beginning of, of this year january february so i was doing a lot of networking finding scientific folks to kind of do uh do trial periods with and i knew that the co-founding relationship was going to be a really really important part of the success of the company so I was taking things very slowly and being very careful and being very picky. So I, I was working with a bunch of different people trying to find trying to find someone who I really clicked with, but nothing nothing was really clicking and nothing was really working that well. So it was about, you know, seven, maybe eight months after I left my job and I still hadn't really found a co-founder who I really dealt with and who I felt like I wanted to start the company with. So I was thinking that, you know, you know, I, I tried to do the company and if maybe it wasn't in the books for me. You know, I, I did my best and, uh, you know, made, made some progress, but maybe it wasn't what was going to be the most impactful thing for me to do. So I actually started to look for other jobs. And then literally the day before I was about to send my resumes out for, for companies, I had one last call with some scientists who had reached out to me on AngelList, because at that point I had put up a put up a profile for my company on AngelList, looking saying I was looking for a co-founder, and he reached out to me. I didn't I didn't think anything of it because at this point I had a lot of these calls like this. So it was a night before I was about to start my resumes out, and we started talking, and I quickly realized that, you know, like like holy crap, this this guy's totally brilliant. He's really passionate about doing a startup, and we we happen to be aligned on the way 
ways that we thought were going to be the most impactful to to attack the industry with a new company. So from that call, we decided to start working together, and I kind of pushed out all of my other plans. And yeah, things have been going great since then. Uh, I feel really fortunate to to have connected with him, and even more fortunate that it was came just in the nick of time. So I think you asked what resources I used. So I think that I mentioned I'd worked with a bunch of people, and I think that the thing to remember with something like this, or you know, hiring in general, is that it's ultimately a numbers game. So you can make yourself as attractive as possible, and you can be sure to look in the right places, but ultimately, you're looking for something extremely specific, and you have to point yourself in the right direction and just cast a very wide net, right? So you're looking for someone who is very smart, very competent, who has a complementary skill set and a complementary expertise, who works well with you, kind of maybe fills in some of the soft skill holes that, that you lack and, and you do the same with them. And I think this is maybe the hardest part, wants to actually start a company at the same time as you do, which you know, actually is pretty uncommon. So yeah, the best thing you can, you can do is just network with as many people as possible and try to put yourself in the best position to kind of get lucky and, and find someone who just meets all the criteria. Which is, which is hard. In terms of more tangible things, I think going to conferences is really good. That's a great way to meet a lot of people quickly. Reaching out to folks and doing a lot of networking, obviously. One thing that was hard for me at the beginning was just to take myself seriously and be as legitimate as possible. Because I think a lot of people when they're starting out, it's hard to do the things that are going to make you uh, more legitimate. So uh, I made a professional-looking website. I made an AngelList profile. I wrote a business plan. And I think all these things was were good signals to people that I was talking to that, you know, I'm, I'm actually very serious about this. I'm looking to commit to something and you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to make it work. I think sending that signal out to people is, is really useful. A lot of times we hear about, people call it like imposter syndrome when you go into a, a new type of field. So w- would you say that you were feeling that? Yeah, I think that is a very accurate description of, of the feeling I was having. Yeah, and so Amir, your co-founder, is he local? I know you you guys connected on LinkedIn, but was he in the Bay Area? No, so just graduated from McGill, which is in Montreal. So we were actually remote for the first month or two that we were working together. So we you know we were skyping a lot, doing a lot of messenger, but you know you, you can only make it so far not actually being face to face with someone. So I'm in actually in Montreal right now, and we're me and Amir are going through a startup accelerator that's part of McGill. So we've been able to you know, be in the same city and, and really get to work and be very productive. I, I think I had remember when we were doing our early research, I think we might have seen that AngelList profile you created. At that time, the kind of shell company that you created was called Stallion Foods. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that was the name. That was the first name I came up with. Okay. Okay, cool. And I, I think it's important to really, earlier you were talking about like, we need more clean meat companies. I think it's important to, you know, anyone who's interested to kind of go out there and, and really put their name out. And, and that's really awesome that, that you did that. And so, you know, why do you think now might be, you know, aside from the fact that we need more companies and, and really everyone in the space is saying that we need more people interested, there's a lot of jobs that are going to be coming out in clean meat. Uh, why do you think now is particularly a good time to start a clean meat company? Well, I think the right time to start a new clean meat company is honestly as soon as possible. <laughs> I think, at least in our case, I felt like we had a unique take on things in a unique direction. And I thought it was important that someone do this, right, for the industry. And so, yeah, I think I think the, the best time to start the business is, is now or maybe yesterday. Every, every year, tens of billions of animals are killed on, on farms and our climate moves one step closer to destruction. So every, every second that we waste is, is potentially damaging. There's a lot of buzz around clean meat right now. And 
Uh, I hate to say that it might become one of those buzzwords like VR and AI. <laughs> but do you think that there are a lot of investors in the space that are interested? And if so, you know, the biggest challenge you have is really not how much to bring in, but who to choose in terms of the right investors. So how, how are you going to go about to choose the right investors or which investors have you already chosen? You mentioned that you're an accelerator program uh, for, for this new company. Do you have a strategy for that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Full disclosure, we're still going through our first round of funding. So maybe talk to me in you know a month or a year and I'll, I'll have different thoughts about this. But I'll tell you a little, about, a little bit about what I'm looking for right now. And the most important thing is just that I'm looking for people who are want to be partners for the long haul, right? Clean meat is not going to be an area where you can go in, get your short-term gains, and then get out. The The reason why I think clean meat is such an attractive option for investors right now is that it just has this massive upside, right? Once you have, once you validate that the technology is there and you can get past the regulatory risks and you can get consumers to be on board with the technology, once you get past all these things, then the floodgates are kind of open, right? The Meat is such a huge part of our society that the upside of getting it all right is, is so huge. But it's going to take a lot of work and a, and a good amount of time before we get to that space. So I think it's important that an investor is, is kind of a long-term partner, not just a, you know, a short-term source of, 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 of capital, right? Also, obviously, connectors with uh, investors with useful connections to, to other areas of biotech or maybe the food industry, these, you know, these are all very useful as well. And how important do you think it is to establish an HQ or base in the San Francisco Bay Area? That's something we're, we're actually think that we're working through right now. One of the things that surprised me about being in Montreal is that there is a pretty noticeable difference in the risk tolerance and the risk mindset of investors and entrepreneurs here. And I think that clean meat is maybe a bit of a harder sell it here than it would be in the Bay. We haven't actually started going on pitching yet. So it's unclear whether or not that's going to translate to difficulty raising, but I think that one of the great things about the Bay is that people are just really ambitious and really willing to take big, big risks for big upsides. And I think that sort of thing is going to be really important. So I think there is a lot of merit, and I think there is a reason you see a lot of the clean meat companies right now focused in the Bay Area. So when we're talking about clean meat companies, we could really put them in two different categories, right? We have one group that is really trying to race to become the first in the market and i mean we could debatably say that that's whole foods distribution and hopefully a lot more distribution uh, in the short term and then there's the other companies that are playing the long-term game kind of like what you mentioned that are either uh, looking for large-scale distribution or maybe even building technologies for clean meat companies so in these two directions either the race or the long term you know which mindset does your company have i think that I don't really see Kieran as adopting either of these strategies, right? I mean, so I mentioned before that it's really important that all this stuff happen quickly. And obviously, there is a pretty big first mover advantage here. If you can get the IP in the important areas, or you can kind of establish yourself in consumers' minds as, you know, the clean meat company or something like that, there's obviously a lot of benefit to be had there. At the same time, I think there's a lot of merit to, to being cautious and moving slowly because we only get one shot at this, right? If we if we mess it up and maybe like, I sometimes worry about this, the personal assistant phenomenon. And so I think about stuff like Siri or the Google Assistant and 
basically they are all terrible and everybody knows they're all terrible. But I think that what happened was that all the big tech companies thought that they had to be the first ones to really get this right in order to reap the benefits. And I think as a result, you see a mindset among consumers that basically just doesn't trust personal assistance. They think that like, you know, why would I ask Siri to do something? Because Siri is just going to like mess it up and Siri's not going to be useful. So I think there's like a similar risk for clean meat if, if there is too much of like an arms race mentality and people are trying to be the first to market. And as a result, they sacrifice the quality or maybe they're not as thoughtful with their marketing as they could be. I think that's a big risk because I think that if you if, if consumer mindsets kind of fall the wrong way, that could delay or potentially impede the the progress of clean meat. So I think there's, so this is not an answer to your question, but yeah, I think there's considerations on both sides. I don't necessarily think Kieran, it falls into either camp. I think the best way to sum up our strategy is be go as fast as possible while guaranteeing the highest chance of success. In tech, we have the ship fast, ship early strategy, but for for clean meat, it might not be so good to, to ship uh, you know, this quote unquote beta product. I mean, it is something you're eating and not creating a social profile on. So it, it does, it, it is very important. Yeah. And, and there's, and there's some interesting dis- disanalogies between, between tech and clean meat or biotech more generally. And so the, the notion you said about, you know, move, move, move fast and break things, right? This is something you often hear in, in tech. There are lots of different areas you can think about this. You can think about this as a strategy for you know, going to market quickly or as pushing out a feature quickly or something like this. But the reason that this is more useful in software than in biotech is because you can iterate with a low cost, right? So if you push out an, an app and it's kind of a flop with consumers, then like no harm done. You just kind of like go out to the drawing board, you make a new app and you push out again. There are, there are disanalogies with biotech that make this strategy a bit harder because you can't iterate as quickly. It's an interesting point though. I think you made a good point because, I mean, you know, you, you, like you said, you could always just take this site down if it doesn't perform or whatever it may be. But if if you, it takes a little bit more effort to get a product out there, a product in stores. Aside from the development effort, it, it also takes, it, distribution is not as easy as setting up a website, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Let's talk about growth. There's, you know, the, growth is a huge aspect of not running a company, but having that startup mindset. And so there's a couple things I want to talk about. First being, you know, once you're at that growth stage, how are you going to choose the, the first 10 people that you hire? And they say that the first 10 will be the most difficult to hire. And so right now the, the community is small and we're hoping that it's growing every day. Uh, but what, what kind of plans do you have for growth and really hiring those first 10 employees? I've been thinking a lot about this recently because, well, shameless plug, we are hiring uh, mammalian stem cell culture experts to help our tech. So if you are a stem cell culture expert, feel free to reach out to me after after you finish listening to this. But I guess my thoughts here are, when I'm hiring, I have a couple of things that I look for in the, in the people that I'm interviewing. The first is uh, just intelligence and competence. And by this, I mean both IQ and EQ. So... I think it's important when you're at a startup and you have to wear a lot of different hats and things are moving very quickly that you have very you have good problem-solving abilities, you are just generally very competent, but you also that you have empathy and humility and that you can work with other people. So this is something I try to look for. I also look for grit because being in a startup is very hard and there are inevitably going to be very hard times in the course of our life. And I also look for ambition. I am excited to work with people who dream very big and want to take on big challenges and, and take risks and are willing to work very hard to accomplish the goals. 
So these things, IQ, EQ, grit, and ambition, are the things I look for the most when I'm looking for people who I want to work with on Kieran. And I think one way in which Kieran is different, maybe from from other people who are going to be hiring, is that you know missing from that list is having years of experience doing the exact thing that you'd be doing for a company. The first thing to remember is that Cleamy is very young, so there are just like very few people who have experience. That's exactly what you're going to be doing at a Cleamy startup, right? But also, I think this is a lesson that I learned. Well, it's a lesson that I experienced firsthand while working at Google. So I think that Google has actually gotten a pretty big edge on hiring in the market of software engineering because they are pretty good at finding people with unconventional backgrounds. And I think I'm I'm, I'm someone someone with an unconventional background. So as I was a philosophy grad out of out of college, and my only experience with coding was a three month boot camp where I learned web development. So given my background, I couldn't get interviews at Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, any of the big companies really, except Google did give me an interview. And I think that because Google has an interviewing strategy of looking for people who maybe don't have years of experience doing the exact thing that they're doing, but maybe have some other qualities that would make them really productive workers, I think they actually this is one of the reasons maybe where they have one of the strongest engineering teams in tech. So. I think I kind of picked up this this philosophy, this hiring philosophy from Google that experience is less important than IQ, EQ, grit, and ambition. I don't want to overstate this because we're definitely looking for people who have PhDs, but those four qualities are definitely more important than you know maybe having five years of experience doing mammalian style culture at a at a big biotech. And just out of curiosity, which uh, boot camp did you go through for programming? It was a development uh, boot camp. Yeah, shout out to App Academy. This is a great program. Yeah. It, uh, they, this is a total tangent, but they're an awesome program, and I would definitely recommend it to anybody looking to move into software engineering. They have a they have a really amazing business model where you don't pay them until you get a job, and then they take a portion of your starting salary. So you, your incentives are basically aligned. They both both you and them want to see you get the job that where you make the most money, which is really nice. If, if you don't get a job, you don't pay them. So you know it's a very low risk thing to do if if you can if you can get in, and I think it's a great program, and I'd highly recommend it. This is kind of like a, a fun question. Uh, let's say everything goes well, very well, and you finish the incubator, or is it incubator or accelerator that you're in now? It's accelerator. Okay, so you finish the accelerator that you're in now, and demo day goes the, goes great. Um, you end up hiring those 10 great people with non-traditional backgrounds, and fast forward five years from now, where is Kieran? Yeah, so five years from now would be 2023. So I think by that point, we definitely will have commercialized our first product, which will be a meat snack. And I'd love to talk about uh, that aspect more. And I think at that point, we want to be growing really quickly on the market side of things, you know, have strong growth in our product and also have a really robust R&D capabilities that we've built out over the years. So five years, first product, high growth. Those are the goals. If you can, tell us a little bit about the meat snack. Yeah, so I think you may have mentioned in the intro that on a high level, we're looking for ways in which cellular agriculture will make meat better. So instead of focusing on the biggest, most established products in the meat market and then trying to replicate them, we're looking at the areas where you can do things that weren't possible with animals but now are possible. And looking at what sorts of products you can make with those that are consumers are really going to want. And we think this is the best strategy for reaching the everyday consumer who might not care about 
the technology or actually even be hesitant to try clean meat. So the first area we're looking at and we're going to be uh, targeting is the meat snack market. So think about beef jerky, meat sticks, this sort of thing. The competitive advantage that we're capitalizing on here is that clean meat doesn't have any bacteria. So over the course of an animal's life, it naturally grows bacteria that stay in its flesh until it becomes meat. And also during processing, the, there's a lot of bacteria flying around, right? So it's just kind of this inherent part of animal agriculture that the end product has high bacteria content. This is why you have to refrigerate meat and you generally don't want to eat it if it's been sitting out too long. This is even more a problem for meat snacks. So because meat snacks aren't refrigerated, you have to do all sorts of other things to make sure you preserve the meat and it doesn't become contaminated. So in the case of beef jerky, for example, there's heavy dehydration. Uh, oftentimes meat snacks will be cured or they'll be exposed to high acidity. All these things degrade the quality and experience of the end product and kind of take the meat snack away from the experience that people love about eating a piece of meat, right? But we can actually fix this with cell ag because the cell ag process, you already have this requirements to keep bioreactors free of bacteria. If you can create a process from bioreactor to packaging that's, that's mostly aseptic, then you can create much higher quality meat snack products that makes the experience much closer to what you'd, what you already love about eating meat for dinner or something like this. So we're using this inherent advantage of cell ag that is bacteria free and we're making a, a better product, so a better meat snack. It also turns out that there's some nice technical advantages that, that go with this focus that uh, will allow us to reach scale a, a bit faster and cheaper. The meat snack market, you mentioned beef jerky, uh, to me is very fascinating. Like a lot of people are, are talking about creating burgers or steaks or whatever it may be. Uh, but but I think that that's a really cool angle to go towards. What But what is the market size for meat snacks? Or, I mean, what is the Slim Jim market share, for example? And I'm not saying that you're going to be creating clean meat Slim Jims, but what is really the, the market size for that? Yeah, so I think the important thing to remember when thinking about meat is that even small markets are big markets. So the meat snack market is, is $2.8 billion in the U.S., and it's it's growing pretty quickly, so by the time we commercialize it, it'll probably be between three and four billion. But I think the important thing to remember is that when you're thinking about you know the first product that you're going to market with, we're taking a concentric circle approach. So you can think of like you know Amazon started with books, and now they're this you know they're this e-commerce behemoth. So we're thinking instead of targeting you know the biggest market out there, you know what's the market where we have the best chance of commercializing quickly and the best chance of of succeeding, basically. Once we move into that market, we can use that to build our capacity, to establish our brand, to scale. And then once we get there, then we can look at, you know, what can we do now that we have all this capacity? So that's why we're targeting a, a market that's maybe a bit smaller than you know, something like ground beef. 2.8 billion, considering that's just the starting point, is, is not a, a bad market share either. So that's very cool. And I think I've mentioned on the show before, just like you mentioned, taking that Netflix approach, like starting with DVDs and then going over to streaming. I think that that is what a lot of companies are, are doing these days. Uber is a great example, starting with drivers and vehicles and switching over to autonomous. We haven't seen that yet in play, but uh, I, th I think it's an, exciting, it's an exciting path towards the future. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I like that we're, we're using tech as a, as an example so much. It's a, it's a nice, give my, give my background. From a development standpoint, so from a product and development standpoint, what are the biggest challenges for not just 
Kieran, but most clean meat companies out there. Is is there something that really needs to be overcome? Is you know we we have samples out there today, but what are the biggest development challenges that clean meat companies are facing today? Yeah, so on the product side, I think some companies have a plan to be more of a supplier, like a wholesale supplier, maybe more than a product company. But I think if you are trying to be a product company and you want to make clean meat products, you have to keep in mind what the value is for the everyday consumer, right? It's not just it's not enough to say that what we're making is like better for the environment, doesn't require animal slaughter. These are good messages, right? But we want to we want to have a much bigger reach than this sort of messaging can can provide. So Akira, we have a particular approach to this, right? We're making products that have uh, advantages over over what you can do with an animal. But there are a couple other ways you can do this as a, as a product company with clean meat. You know, you can make something that's cheaper. You can capitalize on the way that salag is going to affect supply chains and make something that's more accessible than you could do with animals. You can also accomplish something by building a really powerful brand. And if you tell a great story or, or create a very strong premium craft appeal, then this is also a way you can provide value to everyday consumers. But I think the important thing to keep in mind with your product is, you know, why would someone buy this who doesn't necessarily care about the technology or who maybe is a little bit turned off by this? Clean meat, cultured meat, what is your favorite terminology? Yeah, this is a good question and something I've been thinking a lot about recently. And I'm still unsure about things, to be honest. Um, I think I'm I'm using clean meat uh, for now, and I think that's maybe the best way we have. Um, I think that there are some things we ought to keep in mind. So I think that there is a big trend in food right now for transparency. And I think consumers care a lot about feeling like they can trust the people who are making their food. They want to know what they're putting into their bodies. And I think that we ought to be very careful about being very transparent about what we're doing. And I, th- I think that if there's a term that maybe comes off as very markety, which I'm not saying that clean meat does, but you know, like if it comes off as very markety, then even if consumers react to it well in like a very short term, then if they later learn more things about it, about it, that kind of makes it feel like we are trying to deceive them that could have like harmful long-term effects. So I think that, I'm not, an, I'm not an expert in the kind of empirical research that's gone into choosing clean meat. I know like GFI has, has done a lot of stuff on this and other uh, organizations like the like animal charity evaluators. But I think that one thing we ought to be careful of is that asking people how likely they would be to eat meat as opposed to, or sorry, how likely they would be to eat clean meat as opposed to cultured meat or meat 2.0 or, uh, or craft meat or whatever the term might be. Asking, just asking them, like, how likely are you to eat this is kind of giving you a, a signal that isn't capturing all of the relevant aspects necessarily because you have this, like, long-term thing of, you know, you want people to trust uh, the term that you're using. Uh, at the same time, uh, I do think it's, it's like a fine term, and I'm not, like, super worried about it. I think that, I think that there are also merits to just, like, using, having everybody use the same term. So, yeah, those are my, those are my rambling thoughts about that. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, it's it's definitely interesting. And so, you know, if, if there was, let's say, there was a clean meat product from Kieran out today, like what would what would it be labeled as? Would it be labeled as like clean meat jerky or clean, like, let's say, beef jerky? And, and it, like you said, like people do want transparency. So I guess would it would it say clean beef jerky? Yeah, I mean, you certainly shouldn't try to hide 
who you are from the consumers. Like if if you if they think you came from an animal and they discover you that you didn't, not only is that bad for the consumer, that's like somewhat unethical even, right? <laughs> but I think that that this, this is a hard question, and so I, my gut feeling is that you would make it very clear that you uh, use cell ag, but you would spin it in a way that makes it seem uh, very good. So I think the best way to spin it right now is to say, is to kind of give it this this uh, a craft feel. So there's been some talk, Jack Bobo, who's really been pushing this term craft meat. And I think there is some merit to the thought here. I think that you can frame clean meat as a way to really control how we're making products and what we're putting into them. So if you can emphasize, like, we have this technology that allows us to really work with, like, the underlying fabric and the fundamental material of the food products. And this allows us to make, create this very premium craft product. This is, I think this is a, a good way to market clean meat in a way that is both transparent and also appealing. That being said, I'm, I'm not a marketing expert. That's just, my, that's just my intuition right now. So you can get in touch with Robert Yeaman on LinkedIn. Robert, do you have any last insights for our listeners today? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me on your podcast. I'm a regular listener and a big fan, so it's, it's great to be here. Uh, I do have one sh- shameless plug, which was, I think I mentioned earlier, that we're hiring a stem cell culture expert and we're also about to start our raising a pre-seed round. So if you're interested in learning more about Kieran or you are just want to chat, you can email me at robert at kieranmeets.com. That's K-I-R-A-N meets.com. And you can, in general, I'm just very happy to chat with anybody who you know, wants to learn more about what we're doing or who's just interested in clean meat and, and wants to learn more about it. I love talking to, to people who are interested in this space and maybe want to get involved. So feel free to reach out. And my last thought is just that I'm really excited about the future of this industry and I'm really happy to be a part of it. Robert, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story on the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode.